welcome to Spotlight, a Bournemouth University podcast exploring the people and stories behind the research. On today's episode, we speak to Professor Tim Rees about exceptional sporting performance. I'm sure we've all marvelled at the achievements of athletes competing on the world stage. Whether it's scoring the winning goal in a championship game or a gold medal winning performance at the Olympic Games. But what is it that makes these athletes compete at such an exceptional level? Is it something you're born with? Is it hours of dedicated practice or your psychological approach? Professor Tim Rees has explored what underpins world-class sporting performance and his research is now being used by national sporting organisations to support the identification and development of talent. I spoke to Tim to find out more. Hi Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, So your research focuses on exceptional sporting performance, so what makes the difference between say an athlete who competes uh, at an international level or represents their country at an Olympic Games and those athletes who then go on to win a gold medal or win a world championship. So how do you distinguish between those two kind of levels of elite performance and, and what makes somebody compete at that, that very top level? Well, just as a first point, as you were saying that, it, it got me thinking again that the, the interest we had and the interest that was given to us or the direction that was given to us by UK Sport, so that's um, the nation's high-performance sports agency, they wanted to know, was there a difference between athletes who win a gold medal or multiple gold medals and athletes who merely go to Olympics. You know, for most people, going to Olympics is pretty impressive. And by any stretch of the imagination, that's an elite athlete. But their interest was to say, we, or at least they were saying, we think we know how to get athletes to an Olympic Games. You know, we, we can do that. But how can we get more goals? And, and early on, they were using terms like... Um, they were trying to win market share of medals, and it's an arms race to the top. So all this sort of strange terminology you don't normally hear in sport. But that's because so much money, you know, hundreds of millions go into trying to win gold medals. I mean, whether that will continue in the future, who knows? But um, so that was the key. That was the start point. So they said, was there a difference fundamentally between somebody who wins a gold or multiple golds and somebody who goes to Olympics? Supposedly at the same level, they were receiving the same level of funding. But for whatever reason, that person doesn't medal, um, whereas the others do. And so really, we, we tried to, the, the first thing we did, and, and again, UK Sport kind of directed this with us. You know, we want to know everything we know, everything we think we know, everything we, th- we need to know next about the development of talent. Uh, so that was the first point. And I started that, and that was a paper I published in 2016, where we did try to do a review of everything we know. And basically, we, we ended up putting that into sort of three categories. It was aspects of the performer, the environment, and practice and training. So the performer would be things like genetics, physiology, personality, psychology, um, birth date. And then you had aspects of the environment. That might be place of birth, um, athlete support programs, support from parents, friends, family, coaches, and so on. And then practice and training, because that's a huge area already in the talent development literature about, you know, how much practice you've done, volume, what types, how much play, specialization, uh, sampling. And again, we could get into those in more detail as we go. But we tried to sort of say there were these three aspects. Uh, and then eventually we did subsequent research. I don't know if you've asked me to say, have we found the differences yet? Or am I skipping ahead 
so stop me. I think it's the answer that everybody wants to know. So maybe give a little sneak peek now and then we can um, go into more detail. And, and it's and this is hotly debated. And I mean, you know, in Twitter, there's been quite a few big Twitter rails where people have said some of the findings from ours, some of the findings from other people's research are either interesting on the one hand or outrageous on the other. You know, we just tried to report what we found. So in, in our research, we did interview uh, multiple gold medal winning athletes and Olympians. And I, I conducted those interviews, you know, up to five hour interviews. Where we were asking about everything, all those aspects, practice and training, psychology and so on. But certainly one of the, the key drivers that came out of us, which was definitely more controversial and still causes problems, was to say that maybe there was some sort of, um, so, 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 so while there were commonalities, there was striving, uh, in the families of all athletes, there seemed to be some differentiation where uh, multiple gold medal winners had had some sort of developmental experience um, outside of sport, which you might call adversity or some sort of obstacle or difficulty or developmental problem or something, uh, but coupled with finding a sport and that kind of environment in which to thrive. It seems, to, but it was coupled. It wasn't just one without the other. Coupled seemed to be the differentiator because, uh, and why this has caused a lot of difficulty in the literature is because people say, well, you can't promote and say all kids need to have a, a difficult upbringing because then there'll be a gold medal. And of course, you can't say that. It's a horrible message, and uh, we're not even saying that was a driver because you know, in, in other walks of life, people who have these early developmental difficulties develop alcoholism and drug dif- drug problems and so on. But actually, it, was, it wasn't as simple as just that. It was saying that in combination with finding the sport just seemed to give them this area in which to thrive. And then, of course, you still had to have the practice and the training and all those other aspects that might lead to a differentiation. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and other aspects of psychology as well, um, we found. So, yeah, it was. Um, but, but mostly for us, what we found was it was those psychological aspects as opposed to finding huge differences in the amount of practice or training somebody did or something like that. And what about somebody's natural physical attributes? So say, for example, Usain Bolt is taller than your average sprinter. So does that give him an innate advantage because his stride length is longer? Or is it more a combination of those other elements that you've discovered that, that really takes somebody to that top level? Well, I think obviously that would be the case. So one of the interesting ones is, yeah, like that um, one sport is basketball. So the, I, I don't have the odds at the top of my head, but something like, you know, if you're, if you're six foot to six foot two, you have something like a one in 20 million chance of making it into the National Basketball Association or something. As you go up, you get to sort of one in 32,000. Then eventually, if you're over seven feet tall, it's like a set, nearly 20% chance you are actually playing in the NBA. So obviously in, in, in certain sports that sort of physical prowess is quite obviously important. Um, I mean, the, the thing with Usain Bolt was interesting because people often used to think, well, you, you don't want to be too tall. You can't sprint if you're too tall. Well, that obviously was blown out of the water with, with that sort of example. Uh, but that also brings you to not just physical prowess. I mean, uh, coming back to UK sport again, so they were always, they developed lots of things like um, programs called Tall and Talented, where they would get people and say, okay, we can turn you into a world-class rower um, because, you know, you've got a, big set of lungs you've got long arms and long legs and stuff like that and so basketball in basketball the average height in the nba is something like six feet seven i think but and wingspan so the arms that's six foot eight so you've got that combination of really long i'm only five foot eight 
highly unlikely, even if I were younger, that I would ever have made it in the NBA. Um, so I think quite obviously there's physical prowess, but that also brings you back to the idea of is, is genetics important and this whole debate about nature versus nurture and that sort of thing. And obviously in our, in our field, in the sport and exercise sciences, certainly the psychology, we're, we're mostly interested in the psychology and that's that. But I think the genetics are obviously important because um, th- there shouldn't be a nature versus nurture. It, it's both, you know, so you need the genetic raw materials but, you know, if you've got that and you don't do any training or practice, well, you're never going to make it, are you? But also it's likely that your your genetics will sort of determine the sport in which you're most likely to succeed for whatever reason. You know, so we, at the moment, we don't have any evidence that a certain genetic profile will lead to being an elite athlete. But you're perhaps maybe more geared towards being a power athlete rather than endurance athlete based on your genetics. And so you spoke about those three elements that you sort of uncovered in your research. Are they equally weighted or would you say one or other of those kind of has the most impact on sporting performance and development of talent? Well, interesting. In our, in our the piece of research, the main piece of research we did when we were trying to examine differences between uh, super, super elite, those are the gold medalists and the elite. It, in the main, it was the psychological as- aspects that, that came out um, in our research, but that would be like saying all things considered, we were effectively had people who were genetically similar because we were always comparing, say, a, a, a gold medalist and an elite um, athlete who went to the Olympics, who were both on world class funding, both coming through at the same time, same era, males versus males, females versus females. So, in a sense, it was a like for like, and you would argue, therefore, genetically similar. Um, pairing and then and then of course so when that when that is set and everything's matched we were saying well there might have been a difference in the psychology so that's not to say then that genetics or physiology are less important than psychology but once those sort of things I guess were similar we were finding it's for example the, the, the psychology that differentiated and not and we didn't necessarily find a difference in you know practice and training even though there's a huge debate in the literature about how many hours of practice one should do. So there's the thing called the 10,000 hours rule. Um, but there's debate about whether 10,000 hours is either sufficient or even necessary to reach elite levels in sport. And so what do you think about that? Is it about the quantity or is it about the quality of the training or is it just about that kind of magic combination of all of those factors that you've described? <laughs> Whenever I do talks, I often do one and I call it the three myths. And one of the myths would be that practice makes perfect. So the point being, if you don't have that, I guess, genetic material and, you know, you could put 10,000 hours into something and you won't reach the top. Um, a few, um, Someone did it in golf, said, oh, I'm going to set out to do 10,000 hours. And of course, they got nowhere in golf because they just really weren't very good. Um, so the hours don't make it. And, and, and the issue with this 10,000 hours rule, I mean, it came out of work from um, a person called Anders Ericsson, who's done a lot of work in this area. And and he actually suggested that, there, that a rule shouldn't have been made out of his, his research. He had just suggested that there was this sort of average that might be around 10,000 hours. But what we know is that people, um, you know, athletes have reached an incredibly high level, which is as few as 4,000, 4,500 hours. So 10,000 hours probably isn't, isn't the issue. I mean, there's no question that athletes have to train and a lot, but exactly how much and what type has not necessarily been perfectly determined. So 
The 10,000 hours rule is also based on something called deliberate practice, which is meant to be really focused practice, not necessarily inherently enjoyable. Um, it's about trying to you know, get better, whereas there's quite a lot of evidence now that uh, sort of play-based you know, practice is also very good. And that, and that also brings you back to this whole argument about specialising when you're young or sampling lots of different sports. So, and, and again, I, I always often talk this about a myth because um, if you speak to a non-expert, they would intuitively, and, and I would say, you know, it's a perfectly valid thing to say, they would intuitively say, well, of course, you need to start young and, and train really hard, don't you, for lots of hours. And of course, yeah, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? That's what you would think. But actually, the evidence doesn't bear that out. So, in fact, uh, sampling lots of different sports is probably extremely beneficial. And then maybe in sort of later adolescence, that's when you might move to really starting to focus more on sort of one key sport if you want to get to the top. Because again, in um, we know from development programs, athletes who, so I'm thinking like squads, athlete support programs, whatever one might term them, uh, the earlier the entry into those programs the earlier the the athletes tend to be spat out again and and the later they go in the more likely they are they appear to be later um elite athletes so but that's tricky because all all support programs that, that what they base their criteria for choosing athletes into the pro is is their performance at that time so if you've got a kid that's eight and they're incredible get right get them in on the squad but actually the evidence suggests that, that kid will just get spat out at 14 15 and maybe someone who comes in later will actually make it on and have a have a full career. And 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 the the specifics of why that happens at the minute, I guess, is is some of the things we're trying to work on. We don't necessarily have all those answers at this stage. So from an early age, then it's a good idea to try out different sports, learn different Correct. techniques, um, yeah. different group dynamics, I suppose, as well, kind of team sports versus individual sports, and kind of really hone skills across all of those areas to then bring that together. You've nailed it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and what, what might the reasons for that be? Well, one, let's take a genetic point of view. If you, if you are extremely tall and you haven't tried basketball, then you're probably missing a trick or if you haven't tried rowing or um, whatever it is. Um, if you're very short and you're saying, I just want to make it in basketball, you might be a problem. You should try something else. So genetically, you might, if you try lots of different things, you're more likely to find that sport in which you could excel. You know, I really want to be a footballer, but I never made it. Well, if you'd only found that other sport, you might have been a gold medalist, you know. So there's that. But the other side is, yeah, learning those other skills. So if you if you particularly are an individual sport, that's your thing. Or maybe you might gain something by playing in a team sport. You learn to adapt to different situations. And also, you know, there's um, there's been crossover. So some athletes have started in, um, say, say basketball, didn't quite make it at the elite level, then swap over to high jump and then become a world champion in high jump. Because obviously the the jumping and the elasticity and all that sort of stuff is transferring to that uh, new domain. So, um, and, and then also, you know, you're learning, you have reaction time skills in some sports that you might be, you get less of in another, but maybe all those things transfer across and you become the sort of more complete athlete when you finally hone in and stick with it. And also, even as you move to an elite level, from, from other research we've been doing, I think it's really important to keep some of those other aspects going. So sometimes, so in, in, we've worked with England and Wales Cricket Board, and traditionally they used to say when we get young athletes into our uh, England development pathway, we were sort of saying you, you're now focusing on the cricket here and we want you to forego all those other things 
um, even things outside of sport that you were doing, get, get rid of those sort of other things and just focus. But actually the research we show was in terms of, not saying the performance, but certainly in terms of how they cope and the mental health, still having access to those other sort of memberships of other groups and teams and and pastimes is 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 important for them and important for their um ability to thrive even in that difficult situation so i i think it's very important if at all possible even though it's so tempting to keep lots of cards on the table before you sort of absolutely focus on the one sport it almost feels a bit counterintuitive because you just assume that from a really early age you kind of hone in on that one thing and practice and develop and but what you're saying is that actually having that kind of breadth of experience and keeping your options open is actually the best way to become elite in a particular sport. That's my sense. And that's that's what we seem to get out of the research. Now, that's not to say you can't practice in that one sport. You still need to put appreciable amounts of practice and training. But again, it's about sometimes de- this term is deliberate play. So there needs to be play based in certain sports. Um, you can develop a skill set that isn't explicitly in that sport that you can transfer into that sport. And so you might get that from another area. So, yeah, we, we the, you know, the, the evidence suggests that um, certainly in late adolescence, appreciable amounts of practice and training in the, that main sport, um, you know, coupled with appreciable amounts of play and practice in other sports is the kind of formula that takes you to becoming that elite athlete down the line so yeah I think if you um, there is of course there is a tricky one so in sports where this has been there has been evidence for this anyway in sports where um, your elite level might be reached before biological maturation so you're thinking say um, gymnastics and, and female gymnastics where you have a really young athlete is brilliant because they're tiny and they can do everything so well then Yes, they've reached that elite level very early on, but I think that is that seems to be changing. Um, but in general, yeah, we're not saying don't practice and train in that sport, but don't just do that at the expense of everything else and think that this is it's going to happen. Because also, people get chosen into squads because they started early, and the reason they're so much better is just because they started the sport early. But as things get more difficult, they're, they're not necessarily better than the other athletes who catch them up. So, And then you put all your eggs in that one basket. You've perhaps gone away from school to, to train somewhere and it doesn't all work out and you're, you're left with a big hole, you know. And you spoke about deliberate play as well. So how important is it to kind of have a love for your sport and not just feel kind of obliged to become a basketball player because you're seven foot tall, but actually have that enjoyment and, yeah, that passion as well? Is that something that you found um, through speaking to elite athletes? We haven't necessarily covered that. What, what is interesting is, you know, you, you would think having holding sort of gold medal athletes up as role models is um a laudable thing you know particularly if it gets more people to want to do sport and physical activity for health and stuff like that but actually um you know when you think about uh, a gold medal athlete they might be narcissistic they might be desperate to win at all costs winning you know comes above everything else in their life uh they've had this early difficulty followed by this um you know, need to achieve, you know, once you start going through this list of attributes, you sort of think, you know, is this, is this a very 
happy, nice person that I would want my you know kids to emulate or something. And um, you think, yeah, maybe not necessarily, but I'm not. So whether that's the, the the they enjoy or don't enjoy. I mean, there's a whole separate literature as well that that will say you know you start out for the love of the sport, and then let's say the trappings come with the sport of achieving. Um, medals or financial gains and then when, when that's taken away people don't want, don't want to perform anyway because that sort of original intrinsic as they turn it motivation to play is, is taken away by all these external factors um i think um separate to that we what one finding we did notice between the 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 gold medalists and the you know the merely olympians was that um between this you know wanting to be the the best version of yourself and wanting to beat other people. So traditionally you're not going to really get to the top unless you want to beat other people. But what we found with our uh, multiple gold medal winners is they also wanted to be the best version of themselves. So they want to just become um, incredible athletes and they want to beat everyone else was with the merely elite. It seemed to be more, there was more around, they wanted to beat others, but there was less of that and also wanting to be the best version of themselves and sport perhaps wasn't, the you know the be all and end all to them so for example in an olympic cycle they may you know they've gone to an olympics um had a great experience didn't medal then they're offered the chance to do another four years of hard training they might get picked to go again and if they did go they might medal a lot of them were thinking yeah do you know what that that's enough for me i i don't need to go backwards with the multiple gold medalists whether they've done well or not in their first olympics they seem to feel they had to go back. And there's no choice in the matter. I have to go and try and get to another Olympic Games and, uh, you know, potentially win a medal or a gold. And, um, you know, it always struck me that the, the, that winning the gold was, was so important in their lives. And even afterwards, you know, because we were interviewing them in a, in a, when they recently retired, if they could get rid of everything that was going on in their life right now and go back for another shot, they would happily get rid of it. You know, family, friends, they would forego just for another shot. So I'm sort of, I'm always thinking, is that a happy um, person? Or at least is, is that a, is that how you would necessarily want to be? It's probably, it's what needs to be like to, to get to that level, but it doesn't mean that everybody should emulate it perhaps. Yeah. And you've spoken about kind of overcoming adversity and the impact that that's had on talent development. Do you think it's actually that there's something intrinsically in their personality that means that they just barrel over challenges and kind of approach adversity in a different way to the average person based on some of those kind of personality traits that you've just been talking about? Yeah, well, that's interesting because that all comes back to whether there's some sort of genetic um, point to this, because obviously what what we've sort of suggested in our research was to say, oh, um, there may have been these early developmental experiences coupled with, um, you know, finding a sport seemed to be a sort of um, a, a way forward. And others have, have written almost that adversity is, yeah, they'll probably debate it, sort of saying adversity appears to be necessary in some form to lead to getting a gold medal down the line or, or, or without it and, and in some ways you combine to that because what you're saying is you know you need to be exposed to difficulty and obstacles and you learn to challenge them but what, what some will say is well we need to train our athletes to have that skill set first in place 
then they meet the challenges, they overcome them, they learn from that experience, they get stronger, they get stronger. But I would also argue, you know, based based on the genetics or it's um, behavioral genetics, which says that you know anything up to sort of fifty percent of your personality is genetically sort of pre-wired or whatever. Um, you you would argue that some people are probably, yeah, to use your term, I think you said intrinsically or whatever. You know, some people are just naturally ready and better able to cope with those situations than others. So of course that means it's a you know, good time to bring in psychologists to help the, the others to to train up to cope with those situations as well. But I think some people are probably naturally more resilient than others. Yeah. And can you train an exceptional athlete? Can you take somebody from that elite level to then that kind of extra level of performance um or is it yeah is it something that's just within them to begin with i suppose that's the that's the bit that i didn't have to deal with <laughs> what i was always doing is, here's my research i tried to say here's what we've done but you know i'm not in the unenviable position of being the coach who's actually got to convert that and actually i did lots of talks for various different sports um as a result of this and I can I can distinctly remember one talk where a very, you know, sharp person just said, "Okay, so what?" You know, uh, and it also in combination with well, how is this going to help us? And, and as I said, some of the controversial stuff about it has led to, you know, some sort of difficulty in some way. But so what? And, and true, we're not saying so. For example, with that just that one result about, um, you know, early developmental difficulty in combination with finding the sport what can you do about it? You know, when, when the athlete's now 20, 25, you can't change that, whatever. And really, all what we've tried to say is just to, to report on these findings, saying this is some interesting stuff that you may not have taken into account before. So when you are monitoring your athletes and um, profiling them and understanding them, just be aware of all this other stuff that you might ordinarily not know about or touch upon and and, you know you may get your really problematic difficult athletes maybe they're your world beater but just they have this backstory that you need to find out about so yeah so in terms of if you're trying to convert someone from being merely an olympian to world-class level understanding this stuff could help and you know some of the best uh, managers and coaches you know obviously are the ones that are able to work out what it is that makes their players tick to take them on to that next level. And if you ignore that, you're perhaps, you know, missing a trick. And, and, and when I did this, um, I did one talk uh, for, it was the England Rugby Medical Conference. And I do remember one of the coaches saying, well, we've got this player, but they're just a real problem. They're brilliant, but they are a real problem. And they're just causing so much disruption. We're just going to get rid of rid of this person, you know. And I said, fine, you know, it's not, I, I haven't got to deal with it, but we were just trying to say, but just be aware, maybe if by any chance you could harness this person, they may be your world beater. And if you can get the other players to cope as well, you know, maybe try not to throw this person out straight away. But obviously in a team sport, as opposed to the individual, which is most of the um, Olympic stuff, in a team sport, of course, if you've got somebody like that, maybe they're, they're too much of a problem for your, for your team and, maintaining them you know so if i wanted to create a world-class uh world beating team i wouldn't necessarily go out and pick 15 of these 
um, exceptional athletes because in that kind of team dynamic, it, it might not work. Yeah. So in, in 2015, England rugby had something called 665. So I think they wanted, they believed to win the 2015 World Cup, they needed six world-class players. Um, they needed to be six deep in every position, which meant they, they needed to have access to six players who could play in every position. So this is England men's rugby, I should say. Uh, and they thought they would win five trophies by 2020, or that was the sort of plan. Well, in the 2015 World Cup, they got dumped out in the, the qualifying rounds. In effect, they didn't even make it to the quarterfinal ever. But and one of the arguments was that some of their world-class players were not playing for various reasons because they'd had a, you know, one had had sort of missed a police misdemeanor, one was playing in France and was therefore ineligible, and others. So the problem being that you throw out your world-class players and then you haven't got any world-class players in your team. But quite obviously, having 15 would probably be horrific. <laughs> so I think what they're saying is, you know, every team has a, a couple of world-class players who need to be, you know, um, supported by other, I mean, again, unbelievably talented and probably you would call the world-class players they are playing at world level. But maybe you've got your absolute best and you've got your others that sort of support around it. And that's that's the way to do it. And if you can harness both like that, that, that could be your winning formula. Yeah. And you've spoken a bit about working with UK sport and some of the other sports, cricket and rugby. So how has your research and now been used in practice and, and what sort of difference has it made to their regimes and training? I carefully dug out a quote <laughs> from my because this came from my the case study and. And this was one of the people that um, we work with who wrote specifically this saying, my research is the primary piece of empirical research that underpins talent identification, selection, confirmation and development strategy in British elite sport today. Performance directors, national coaches and sports scientists working for more than 40 national governing bodies of sport and the four home country institutes of sport have consistently used the results and conclusions from this research to inform the design and continuous improvement of the ways in which talent is defined, profiled, evaluated, and understood. Now, I know that wasn't that was a bit boring me reading it out, but basically, yeah, across all those national governing bodies of sports, they're saying this this has been used. So, and even with um, with tennis, there was this idea. So, I spoke to the the then um, head of talent uh, at, at tennis at the time, and, and one of the things they're saying was we. There's no two ways about it. You have to get tennis players in early onto the um, sort of treadmill of playing tournaments internationally if they're going to make it. So despite the conversation we had earlier where I said, oh, make sure you start later. They're saying, well, we, we don't really have any choice because if an athlete comes in, they, they're doing really good, really well at, say, under 14 age level, then they get up to under 16 it says if they're then still playing sort of Wimbledon juniors, US Open juniors, which is up to 18, they haven't made it. So basically, once they get, you know, particularly on the, the women's side, once they get to 15, 16, if they haven't gone up to the senior side and they're already on the senior tour, they're not going to make it. So then you're in this, okay. <laughs> so, and they were setting up an amazing new squad system in London uh, where athletes are taken away from their home environment. You think, wow, what happens if they don't make it? But what they were trying to do is to to say, how can we mitigate everything we are learning about talent development, but still, you know, achieve the aims of the sports, given that we will probably have to start athletes at an early age. So part of that, based on not just the research with UK sport, but other stuff we've done with England, Wales, cricket world as well, was to say, how can we set up support structures that um, 
enable athletes to achieve you know without you know just being in this really intense harsh environment without the sort of support that, that obviously young people will need you know I, I hadn't realized things like so a female tennis player might be 14 they're traveling all over the world with two middle-aged blokes and that's their entire support system when they're away it's just it's not normal is it it's not normal situation so how can you try to help the the athlete achieve what they want to achieve whilst minimizing the potential downsides and so how does it feel knowing that your work has not only potentially contributed to the next Wimbledon winner or the next Olympic gold medal winner, but also to their well-being and the support networks that have been put in place around these athletes to ensure that not only do they perform at the, the best level possible, but also that their well-being is, is taken into account as well? Uh, well, I would say it, a, it is very gratifying. But on the other hand, I wonder if we don't um, promote it enough. So that comes back to this point about impact. So we've gone out there with athletes, but it makes me think, you know, should we be doing even more to get this information out there? Because I still find with talks I do people still believe the myths so I think oh, I've done all this great work how, how how clever of me and it's affected all these sports but obviously there's still so much more that can be done and, and one thing I often think is you know parents are probably crying out to find information to make the right decisions about their kids and what they're doing and it's difficult to find it because you know the people who shout the loudest are out there saying come and join our squads. If you don't join our squad when you're five, you know, you ain't going to make it as a tennis player or whatever. And so parents would say, oh gosh, yeah, we'd better do it. We'd better drive the length and breadth of the country. Otherwise it won't happen. And, you know, I sort of feel we need to get the message out there to say, hang on, take a step back. Let's not rule everything out. But on the other hand, the evidence doesn't bear out that this will lead to the, the sort of conclusion you want. So, you know, on the one hand, obviously it's great, and and when I read back through like that quote I gave you, I thought, like, oh, okay, so this has, this has actually had a big impact, and then of course you're just busy working on the next paper, and you've just got your head down in your office, and um, yeah, we perhaps need to get out there even more to promote the work, I think. And so if there are any parents listening to this who have a child who they think has potential to become a world class athlete, what one piece of advice would you give to them? Well, I would say yes, go with the athlete and what they want to focus on um, but also give them an opportunity to try lots of different sports uh, that's probably the best way to, to find the one that works for them and of course they may just follow if the if the parent is particularly passionate about sport they may just follow in the footsteps of the parent that's also fine but don't rule out the option to try different you know individual and team sports but you know I'm a parent so you cannot force these things the kid does not want to do it uh you see you can't force it so i think there will be a combination of something inbuilt in the in the child to want to do it and go with it whilst also offering every opportunity um you know and then just supporting as best as possible without criticizing i mean that's the, the big thing there's lots of stuff around i mean there, there are there are there's a whole um crew are doing work on parenting in sports and do parenting workshops to help people cope with the, the children who are athletes. Um, so I think main, yeah, my big thing would be to sample lots of different sports early on as, as much as possible, but also to build a love of, you know, physical activity in general and exercise so that hopefully they will carry on into the future. And even if they don't make it as a world-class athlete, 
you might continue to a enjoy sport let alone enjoy being physically active because you know that's so important for the health of the nation more generally Brilliant. That's really good advice. Hopefully people are listening to this and, and going to take that on board. <laughs> yeah. um, I just wanted to ask, where did your interest in this subject come from? What is it that um, makes you passionate about this as a, an area of research? OK, so I have to be totally honest on this one. It was completely fortuitous. So I started out um, from the sports science route, so it's sports science degree, PhD around sports science and psychology. So I'm a chartered psychologist and a sport and exercise scientist, most of my research early on was about the psychology of elite performance. And I was particularly interested in support, how we support athlete support structure, because that came from my own passion of playing. So I played tennis full time after leaving school for a bit before jumping back into academia and also played hockey, um, field hockey at, at a high level. So I was interested in that. But I was also interested in the support, the support around around that sort of thing. And then moving to different areas. Then I started to take a little bit of, you know, the psychology of physical activity. So that's another research area I work in. But the talent development aspect came completely by chance just because UK Sport um, advertised funding to run research for them. And I thought, wow, that looks interesting. And I think I could do it. And luckily, I managed to, I had to do a pitch event. <laughs> and I managed to obviously wow them enough in that as well as, uh, you know, the written documents we put in. And then I sort of moved into an area that I hadn't really spent a lot of time looking at. And it's, it's fascinating. And separately, then, one area that I came across again, which I didn't know much about, was the genetics. It's still something I'm trying to uh, make happen now and get, get, get funding for to look at the genetics uh, underpinning. Uh, elite athletes so yeah yeah I was going to ask you what's next then for you and and for this area of research what's what's coming up I think there is there is so much to be done in this area and um, lots of other groups are doing great work as well I personally am really interested in in genetics just because I feel you know even with the research we've done you one can start to focus on purely environmental factors as being the driver for um elite level performance and clearly we've got to do that research we want to know about the best sort of coaching environments the best support but I'm just really interested in that sort of genetic aspect and not not you know in some ways somebody say well yeah but once the genetics is there what can you do about it but I just think it's really interesting because there's no question that um, genetics are going to become more and more prevalent in in all walks of life as as time goes on genetic material will be routinely collected from newborns in the in the years to come at some point and these, these data will be available and I just think if we can understand a bit more about genetic makeup of uh, athletes it just might help us to um, then think about the, the start point and, and, and tailoring training to people's sort of genetic potential I mean it's, it's a long way off but I just find it interesting so that that's something I'm doing and particularly in my, my interest is the, the genetics of the psychology of elite level performers so uh yeah but i in the meantime you know i'm still doing other work here and and other work around physical activity as well and and other areas so it seems like there's no magic formula but a combination of genetics practice and your environment that all contribute to world-class performance and who knows perhaps the next time you see an athlete on that winning podium 
they might have been supported by Bournemouth University Research. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Spotlight or subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify to hear more from Bournemouth University.